A, B, C, D, E, F, G starts the beginnings of democracy. Well, democracy is messy, and so is my singing of the beginnings of the alphabet song. But there's a reason for the strangeness here, because it's really kind of true. I mentioned Thomas Cahill uh, two weeks ago in my sermon, uh, the author of The Gifts of the Jews. And one of those gifts is this, this premise, this idea that everybody matters, that even the, as Jesus will later call them, the, the least of these, the, the people that ordinarily would be considered the insignificant ones, even those people, even we matter. This idea of the alphabet, though, uh, Cahill brings out in his book, uh, filters into this mindset in the Hebrew people. Because uh, you may remember growing up, I know uh, some of us uh, still kind of have those memories of first grade, second grade, learning to read and learning something called phonics, if you remember phonics. Well, interestingly, the word phonics comes from the word Phoenician. Now, why would that matter? Well, it turns out Phoenician forms the basis of our earliest understanding of an alphabet. Now, even the name alphabet can be traced back to this early Phoenician. Now, we get it technically from the Greek language, alpha, beta, or the first two letters of the Greek alphabet, alpha, beta. But in the Phoenician language, which later expands to include Hebrew, in that alphabet, 22 letters, Aleph, Bet, the first two letters, A and B, Aleph, Bet, form the basis of Alpha, Bet, but really signify something that's fascinating. And that is 22 letters were so much easier for people like you and me to learn Prior to this time, the idea of writing down a language was really cumbersome. The Hebrew people, remember, had just come out of Egypt in our Exodus story. They had been in bondage, and in the land of Egypt, the, the Egyptian language was primarily written down in a writing system called hieroglyphs. The hieroglyphs were just symbols that recognized things out there. They were just pictures of things in reality. There were over a thousand hieroglyphs in hieroglyphics. And so this writing system was very cumbersome, and it was only for the people who were wealthy and had time to sit around and learn a thousand characters. The same was true in Sumer, where, where originally Abraham came from, the city of Ur. And that, that place was similar. There was a language system called cuneiform. And cuneiform also had about a thousand characters. They were written in clay tablets. Now, another little interesting thing, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm getting off into the weeds here a little bit, but it's kind of important, you'll see in a moment, that the writing systems we're talking about, it was including Hebrew and Phoenician, go from right to left, as opposed to our writing system, where we write from left to right. And the reason is very interesting. I hope I'm not boring you too much at this point, but it's, it's significant in the sense that originally Phoenician and Hebrew, cuneiform and 
hieroglyphics were written from right to left because it took someone tapping into a wet clay tablet or uh, carving into a stone tablet. And uh, most people holding a tablet, uh, if most people in those days, like now, were right-handed. So you take a hammer in your right hand and you tap into that wet clay tablet or tap into the carving instrument that is tap that is carved into stone. And it's easier for a right-handed person to go from right to left using a hammer and a either a carving instrument or a stamp that would go into wet clay. As opposed to later with Greek writing, Greek goes from left to right because papyrus had been invented, a sort of like paper substance, and people were beginning to write with ink. So going from right to left made more sense because that was easier and you didn't have to worry about smearing the ink that you had just written. As opposed to trying to write from right to left, you would smear the ink as your hand moved through it. So these earliest writing systems went from right to left because the nature of making the writing or imprinting the writing was much more cumbersome and needed a, a, a tapping instrument. This was true now for uh, these two major powers, the, the what would become the Akkadian writing system or the Akkadian language and Babylonians in the West and the Egyptians in the East. It was only wealthy people and important people and people who had time to sit down and learn these thousand characters in both of those writing systems for those languages. As opposed to with the Phoenicians and then the Hebrews who began to develop through the Phoenician language this very efficient language with an alphabet that had 22 characters and the characters were in conjunction with sounds as opposed to symbols. This was unique. This was an incredible movement in history, and it formed the basis for regular people beginning to be able to converse in ways that was not really possible before. That is, in, in a writing system that the average person could learn about and learn to read and write without the incredible cumbersome nature of the other writing systems that were out there. So Phoenician, that became Hebrew and later Greek, was transformative in the history of how people began to learn and to relate to the opportunity for new knowledge. So we have really in this ancient Hebrew language, the foundation for a people coming from a land where they were nobodies and would never have the opportunity to learn to read or to write, to now all of a sudden having access to reading and writing and language. But there's another important aspect to this movement from Egypt into what we've been calling simply the, the wanderings of the Sinai, where it's here that the people now become encountered, encounter God in a way that is also transformative, and it turns out is incredibly unique in the history of law. They are given a law that we said two weeks ago is really a form of worship in the sense that it, it trains us, it helps form a basis for how we relate to each other, how we 
treat each other, and how we worship and understand God. But there's also something about this law, starting with the Ten Commandments, but then expanding in the broadened commandments that are scattered throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy within those first five books. And that is what we can call a constant bias. So not only now do we have a a language that begins to emerge that has within it an alphabet that is accessible, but we also have a law that is biased. The law is biased consistently in favor of the poor and the powerless. The law of God is consistently leaning in the direction, a consistent bias in the direction of the underdog. The law of God cares very much for people who have been left out, who have been mistreated. Part of the reason for that, of course, is the Hebrew people, the children of Israel, have come out of a land where they were enslaved, where they had no rights, where, when, especially when we get to the, the last five commandments in the Ten Commandments, no murder, no adultery, no stealing. Think about those commands. Prior to this moment in history, the Hebrew people had been victims. When they had family members killed, nobody cared. There was no recourse for someone who had murdered one of the Hebrew folks who had been enslaved. When someone took their wives or or daughters into the local harem, nobody cared. There was no recourse. There was nothing they could do. They were consistently victims. When somebody in Egypt took their stuff, just helped themselves to what few things the, the Hebrew people had, nobody cared. Now, all of a sudden, the law of God is is really leaning in a very consistent bias in the direction of people who didn't used to matter, but now they do. Now they are important. Now they are seen as the creation story says, God created you just like God created Pharaoh and the aristocracy, and the priest, and all the important people, you are equal because you also have God's fingerprints on the dust of the earth that God formed that came to represent you. You matter. Now, this forms also the basis for Jesus and especially the Sermon on the Mount. We've said before that Matthew is very intentional about making sure we understand the connection between the Sermon on the Mount and Mount Sinai. Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount and Moses receiving the law from God on Mount Sinai. These two high places in both Exodus and in Matthew represent God's movement into and through the people of God. And with Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is proclaiming the new law as the new Moses, the new lawgiver. And with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very intentional, first of all, of taking the same bias that God begins with and being very concerned about the people who've been left out And Jesus looks out at this group of people in Galilee and says to them, 
you are the light of the world. Which in those days would have been crazy because the light of the world was, that was only the rabbis or the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus is now expanding this metaphor and saying, you ordinary regular people who everybody else says you don't matter and you're nothing, I say, not only do you matter, but God needs you to shine good news and compassion and kindness and love into our world. You matter. You are important. Jesus makes it even more explicit in this fifth chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, specifically in verse 21, where Jesus references Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, you've heard it said of old, you shall not kill, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you even insult someone, you will be taken before the council. Because what you've done is you have said to the person you've just insulted, you don't matter, and you might as well be dead to me. Jesus said this is, this is a violation of the sixth commandment. Don't murder. I say if you even insult someone, you have violated the sixth commandment. A friend not long ago said to me, you know, if, if Christian people had just listened to Jesus and lived out what Jesus needs us to be doing, if in our country from the beginnings, from the origins of, of our country, when there was this idea of this is a city on a hill in, in the, the, the Puritan experiment that started out everything, uh, this city on a hill, this, this light, if we could have just really figured out what it was that Jesus was expecting, this this constant bias in the direction of the poor and the powerless and the underdog. There never would have been a need for Black Lives Matter. If Christians had lived out, if Christians had been intentional about making sure no one got left out, making sure that no one was treated in a way that made them feel less than, if only Christians, people in churches in this land, if we had just been able to get this bias that God starts the law with and Jesus lives out and teaches and preaches in the Sermon on the Mount, there would be no need for anyone to say black lives matter because that would have been clear, implicit in our care for one another and making sure that no one got left out but we haven't. And therefore, it is important, especially for white people like me, to be able to say without condition right now, black lives matter. Not conditioning it with, well, all lives matter. Of course, all lives matter. But we must say without apology right now, black lives matter. Why? Because it's clear in God's law. It's clear in Jesus and his perspective that when anyone is left out, we must make special effort to lift them up and remind them that they too have been created in the image of God. And no one in God's broad, global, universal family 
should be made to feel less than. This rings true consistently when we share in the Lord's Supper together because what we do is we are recreating the supper that Jesus shared, the Seder meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. When he lifted the unleavened bread and said before them, this is my body broken for you, Jesus is very intentionally reminding them in that Seder meal the Passover experience, Jesus is reminding them in a way also this very important bias that God starts with the, the, the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Because one of the laws is connected directly to that Passover experience, and it's this one. Love the alien as you love yourself. Because you were once aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. In other words, when you partake in the Seder meal, and Jesus saying to the disciples, when you eat this unleavened bread and remember the Passover, and remember the bread in the wilderness, the bread from heaven, the manna that came as a gift in the midst of hopelessness, when you remember this, Remember also what it feels like to be left out, to be worried about where your next meal may be coming from, to ask yourself, what does it feel like if, if you're not left out now? Remember what it feels like to be left out when you have been left out. Remember me, Jesus says, sharing in the unleavened bread you were once aliens in the land of Egypt. Don't forget what it feels like. Don't move past this moment without reminding yourself how important it is as you try to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. To do that means you must stop and think, what does it feel like to be in their situation? You were once aliens in the land of Egypt, taking unleavened bread and having to flee for your lives because you had been enslaved people and treated horribly. But thank goodness God has given us the law that leans in the direction of the poor and the powerless, that has a bias on behalf of the underdog. And Jesus reminds us, don't give up that bias. Keep that sense of compassion and concern because that forms the basis of our faith and our service and our sense of worship. Jesus also lifted the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is the cup that has in it the wine that represents my blood that was shed for you on your behalf so that now you might have the strength to stand for what is right to work with God's law as a biased system in favor of the underdog and the poor and the powerless. This is unique in the history of law. This is unique in the perspective of cultures around the world. This forms really the basis of democracy, and this stands as the beginnings for you and me of new life in Jesus 
and strength for today. Brothers and sisters, take this bread, drink of this cup, and in doing so, remember Jesus, remember the law, and know that you matter. Your life is important, and God needs you to remind others the same. May it be so. Thanks be to God. Amen.